Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. A woman's place is in the kitchen. You ever hear that old adage? Despite that well-worn saying, it wasn't until the second half of the 20th century that women began to find their place in the restaurant kitchen. This week, We've gathered together a powerful group of females who are breaking barriers and setting new standards for excellence in their fields. We begin with Nina Compton, the first black female chef to receive the coveted James Beard Best Chef nod. We'll learn what it took to get there and why she chooses to call New Orleans home. Then we'll talk with hometown girl Meg Bickford, the first female to ever rise to the executive chef's position at Commander's Palace. There's an awful lot of talent and power in that tiny little frame. Finally, we meet new restaurateur, Betty Sun of Lotus Bistro, who celebrates powerful women from the menu to the decor of her tiny little sushi spot in New Orleans Lakeview neighborhood. It's a celebration of girl power on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, everybody. My name is Chef Nina Compton. I am the owner of Compella Pen and Bywater American Bistro here in New Orleans. Since 2015, St. Lucia native Nina Compton has been making a culinary splash in her adopted city of New Orleans. After finding national fame on season 11 of Top Chef, Nina opened Compare La Pan in New Orleans' Warehouse District, which garnered rave reviews for its menu inspired by the Caribbean flavors of her youth. In 2018, Nina was named Best Chef of the American South by the James Beard Foundation, becoming the first black woman to receive the prestigious award. Today, Nina oversees both Compare La Pen and her newest venture, Bywater American Bistro, along with her husband and business partner, Larry Miller. We joined Nina at Bywater American Bistro to discuss her life and meteoric success in the culinary world. I began by asking her about her childhood in the Caribbean, where she grew up as the daughter of St. Lucia's first prime minister. You know, the childhood I had was the best. You know, not only island life, but my family life was really great. Um, you know, my parents never really boasted about my dad's you know position in the government it was more of a humble this is your dad and that's who you see him as first as your dad before you see him as prime minister um, my dad is very humble he was very big into farming and agriculture and all of those things and he loved being in the countryside that was his escape uh, we had a farm in the south of the island and he would go there every monday and every wednesday very very at the crack of dawn he would drive down there and he would just 
be one with the land. And he'd come home, at, you know, like around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and have coconuts and oranges and, you know, root vegetables that he got from the farm. But I think, you know, on a daily basis, going into the garden, we had everything. We had mangoes, guavas, papayas, avocados, you name it, everything was there. So when you talk about farm to table, that was, that was my childhood. You know, my dad would go and my mom would go and get, you know, fresh limes from the garden and we'd have fresh lime juice for breakfast. Uh, papayas would come up the tree and they're still warm. Um, I had that growing up. So for me, I was really spoiled. It made me learn to appreciate having the, the access to those things as a chef. So you had those influences in your life. And another thing is getting a love of food from your grandmother. Mm -hmm. Which grandmother was it and how did she influence your life? It was my mom's mom, who um, was actually English. She was a nurse uh, during the war and she met my grandfather who was St. Lucian. He was studying to be a doctor. And after he finished school, he wanted to move back home and she fell deeply in love with him and said, I want to move to St. Lucia. And I thought I was very brave because this is the 1940s. There's no Google like, let me look up St. Lucia and you know, what's going on over there. It was blind faith. And she came to the island and you know, we're not eating fish and chips or pork pies or any of those things. Um, it's a different cuisine. You know, we eat green bananas as a starch. We treat it like a potato. So when she saw these things, she's like, this is very foreign to me. Um, but she adapted and she fell in love with it. And she was very curious and always asked people like, hey, I need a recipe for breadfruit. I've never cooked it before. Um, can you show me how to do it? So she, she found a lot of friends in, in the neighborhood that showed her how to cook these things. And she passed those things on to me. So it was just really nice that she cooked some very English things, but she also cooked some very Caribbean things, which I really enjoyed. What are some of those happy memories that you have of being in the kitchen yeah. with your... What did you call your grandmother? I call her Granny. She would wake up so early. She'd be the first one up, always in the kitchen with her tea. And she always had a banana and some bread and she'd make a little sandwich or whatever it was. And that was her breakfast every single day. And then she would start preparing lunch. And she would see what was in the garden, what was available. Then we'd have a fisherman. We'd see what he had. And then that's how we kind of planned the meals so growing up she was always in the kitchen so as soon as I wake up I always go to the kitchen I hey granny what's going on and as I got old I would help her with things you know cutting vegetables peeling onions doing things like that and she kind of leaned on me as I got older and trusted me with more things she's like okay today we're gonna you know we're gonna fry uh, flying fish and I'm like all right granny can you show me how to make this and she'd show me and then she'd leave me alone so she gave me more and more things to do as I got older. So it was really nice to become a team like that. Nina, what happened at home when you came home and said, I think I'm going to be a cook? <laughs> so Christmas time is a very big part of our family time. And I was studying in England and I came home and I said, you know, I'm like, I want to cook uh, like a little cocktail party because that's something that I know my parents really enjoyed. So I made these little canapes and I did all these things. And um, I saw my whole family sit outside and, 
you know, we made mocktails and cocktails and my niece and nephew came with a tray and they passed the food around. And hearing them laugh and smile every time they took a bite of food, I told my mom, like, I think I want to become a chef. And she's like, don't do it. It's too much stress. It's too much pressure. It's all these things. And um, she's like, well, if you really want to do that, I think that you need to get a job. I was 18. She said, get a job and see if you really like it. So I worked at Sandals Hotel in St. Lucia, and I spent almost two years there. And uh, I loved it. I loved learning. I loved the different kitchens I got to work into. I worked in pastry. I worked in garmage. I worked in a French kitchen, the Japanese restaurant. So all those things were really exciting to me. And I saw that there was just no limit to learning something new every day. So how did you get off of the island and into the professional kitchens of the mainland? So it's kind of a round, it's a funny story. So after working in St. Lucia, I I wanted to learn much more. I felt like I wanted to learn more. And they had many resorts all through the Caribbean. So I spoke to general manager. I said, I think I want to transfer to Jamaica, see a different island and learn something new. And that was really great for me because Jamaica is very similar, but also very different to Solution cuisine. So I worked there for two years and I met this American chef and I said, I'm like, hey chef, I think, um, I think I've learned everything. He's like, no, you never stop learning as a chef. And he said, um, if you feel like you've hit the ceiling, go to culinary school and learn the fundamentals because sometimes working in you know restaurants or hotels, some things are not, you not have the foundation in place. And he said, there are two schools you should go to, either Johnson Wales or CIA in New York. So I went to my parents and I said, I, th- I think I want to go to CIA in New York. And that's how I left a little rock. <laughs> <laughs> So you graduate from culinary school. Yes. How did you end up in Miami from there? So I saw it as, you know, going to school and then going back home and opening a restaurant at some point. And I said, okay, let me just make a couple of stops before I go home. And I said I wanted to learn from the best while I was here in this, in this country. So I worked for Restaurant Danielle. That was a four-star, you know, mission restaurant. And I really enjoyed working there. New York was just too cold for me, and it was just the one year, and that was it. So I moved to Miami, and I worked for Norman Van Aken. And Chef Norman at that time was cooking Floridian um, food, Caribbean, um, Latin, lots of flavors, very humble greens that I grew up with. You know, we talk about yucca and conch. He was cooking with those things, and I hadn't seen anybody use those things. So for me... I was just like, I want to learn from him. And I spent two years working with him and it's still one of the most memorable experiences I've had as a chef. From there, I went to work for Chef Scott Conant. Uh, I reopened the Fountain Blue Hotel, which is, as you know, iconic. When you talk about Frank Sinatra, that was, you know, his, his background. So a lot of those things for me, it was learning again from the best. And I really fell in love with his cooking techniques, his styles. And I was there for seven years. And then I got the phone call. And I called him up. I'm like, Scott, what should I do? I, I, I got this call to this, this TV show. He said, you should do it. He's like, you might win. And it's going to open up so many doors for you. So I took his advice. And here we are. <laughs> 
that particular episode of Top Chef was filmed here mm -hmm. in New Orleans. And you had never been to New Orleans before, no. had you? So the casting process is, is quite long. Lots of interviews and all of these things. So when I got the phone call, they said, you finally made the final cut. And they said, it's going to be filmed in New Orleans. And I was just, I'm like, oh my God, this is so meant to be. And I remember telling my husband, I'm like, I'm, they're going to be filming in New Orleans. I've always wanted to go. I've always wanted to be there. And I remember flying in and driving on the Esplanade and seeing these beautiful houses and the oak trees and the warm air and the beautiful bright homes. Like everything for me was just wonderful. What a special memory that must be for you because it really is a great line of demarcation in your life, isn't yes. it? Yes, it's, it was really great. Um, I think experiencing something like that, it was, a, it was very hard. You can't prepare for something like that um, because the challenges are so unique. And you know, we would sit in the, in the house and say, I think our challenge is gonna be beignets tomorrow. And we'd always try and guess. And after a while, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna stop guessing. I'm just gonna go with my eyes closed and take the challenge head on. And I had a lot of fun with it um, because I became more creative because I wasn't planning everything ahead of time. It was just being a free spirit while I was cooking. How did all that turn out? It's um, <laughs> it's still overwhelming because um, a lot of people are still mad that I didn't win. Um, I still get an occasional message um, saying, you should have won Top Chef, da 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 da. So a lot of those things um, for me was really, it was really great because people were showing that they, they were connected to me while I was on the show um, and they still are. And it's nice to have, you know, fans that, that really um, care and wanna uplift you. And when I moved here, it was great to see how people are so supportive. Well, let me ask you about that because, you know, so you came to New Orleans, you did Top Chef. At what point did you say to yourself, I'm gonna go back there, that's gonna be my home. How did you make that decision? Well, after filming here, I always wanted to find a way back because the city really spoke to me. It's a very enchanting city. It's very, it pulls you in. Out of all the places I lived, New Orleans really, it felt like home. And I felt very comfortable in my skin. Um, and I felt appreciated, you know, as a chef. You know, the industry is very competitive. So when people say, well, we have so many restaurants and it's very cutthroat, it's, it doesn't feel that way here. It feels more supportive. And when you talk about more restaurants opening up, that means more jobs, more diversity. Um, in the city, so it, it becomes this, you know, big community of support. And I felt that way when I moved there because people are telling me, thank you for moving here. Um, you know, chefs were excited to see something new. So it wasn't about becoming stagnant, it was about the city growing and becoming more vibrant through food. And I felt that, I felt really welcomed. Nina, this has been such a treat to sit here and learn directly from you, your special story, especially your special story with New Orleans. Yes. You know, I, it, we can tell that you love us and goodness knows we love you. Oh, <laughs> yes, I am happy to be here. I'm happy to call this my home after six years. 
So I'm looking forward to many more years here. Thank you, Nina. My this pleasure. is such a treat. My pleasure. Thank you. Chef and James Beard Award winner Nina Compton of Compare La Pen and Bywater American Bistro. Coming up next, we have a conversation with Chef Meg Bickford, the first woman to take the helm at New Orleans' iconic Commander's Palace restaurant. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to join the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. I'm Meg Bickford, Executive Chef at Commander's Palace. Recently, there have been some huge changes under the iconic blue and white awning at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Meg Bickford is the first female in the restaurant's long history to burst through the gender barrier and become Executive Chef, stepping into some big shoes formerly filled by the likes of Paul Prudhomme and Emerald Lagasse. When we sat down with Meg in our Louisiana Eats studios, she began by explaining where her love for food began. Well, I think like a lot of people in South Louisiana, growing up, my life just kind of revolved around food. It always had a very, very important place in our home. And, you know, the kitchen was always the center of the house like it is in so many families in South Louisiana. For us, we used food to grieve over. We used food to celebrate over. You know, when when we were eating one meal, we were talking about what the next one was going to be. And just growing up in that environment, you know, where everyone in my family cooked, um, not professionally, it was just a trade that everyone learned. 
and and you were proud to learn it and things were passed on generations and so growing up in that environment I saw how powerful food was and how food really made people feel how food really healed people how food helped people celebrate and I knew I wanted to be a part of that feeling for me early on it wasn't really the cooking that had me hooked but just the power of it Um, but the cooking was the fun part Meg's passion for cooking led her to the John Fulce Culinary Institute at Nichols State University in Thibodeau. Upon graduation, she was hired at Commander's Palace, where she began as garde manger. So I um, started making salads and learning appetizers and eventually made it to the hotline, where I was working saute and grill backline. That was pretty fast-paced. To move, you know, I mean, in the time span that I did, and it was really hard, you know, in culinary school. I, um, you know, with respect to my peers in culinary school, I was a bit of a big fish in a small sea. And when I went to commanders, it was like, whoa, you know, I mean, like, talk about the tables turned immediately. Uh, but I was very, very fortunate to be surrounded by really talented people. And I was able to learn very quickly because I had no other choice. <laughs> um, but I excelled really quickly. And um, there was a lot of opportunity. And thank God for that. Chris Barbado and Tori McPhail really took me under their wing and, you know, showed me the right way. And it was sink or swim. In 2015, Meg made her first power move when she was named executive chef at Cafe Adelaide, a commander's property in the Lowe's Hotel on Poydras Street. I asked how breaking that barrier made her feel. I was very, very shocked and thrilled, you know. Um, something Chef Tori always used to say to us is, when's it going to happen? Like, when are you going to be executive chef? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You know, don't wait till you're 50. It's, you know, it's too late. You got to go. You got to go. And so when that happened, it was like, that's all I could hear in my head. You know, it's like this, it's happening. This is happening. Um, And so I took over at Adelaide and was there for three beautiful years. And we did a lot of fun stuff. And it was such a great restaurant. Um, And I'm very, very honored that uh, I got to hold the helm there and hold the title that I did for our restaurant group. Um, and, And then new history started. Early in her tenure at Cafe Adelaide, Meg learned some unexpected news. The female executive chef was also going to be a mother. I was curious just how she broke that news to her female bosses, T. Martin and Lolly Brennan. T's expression will never leave my mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> a bit. You know, so I said, well, I have some news to share with everybody. And I said, you know, Richard and I are going to have a baby. And Dottie said, what did she say? And T's <laughs> just across the table staring at me, like blank stare. And I said, well, we'll say something. And she goes, I don't, yeah, I mean, yay, you know, just completely, <laughs> completely threw her off guard. And so, you know, we all celebrated and she said, well, you know, I knew we were doing something really cool when I hired, you know, when we had the first female chef of the commander's restaurant group. She said, but I didn't know a baby was going to come with it, you know. So we had a great laugh about it and they were incredibly supportive and still to this day are incredibly supportive. 
But I also learned a lot of very, very valuable lessons, you know, being pregnant and trying to run a kitchen. Um, my stubbornness and hard-headedness really helped me plow through that. I learned something that I have always struggled with is a proper way to delegate to people and, and truly understanding what that means. About halfway through, that became very apparent that I was very poor at that, you know? And I, I had known that about myself, but it's like, okay, but now I have to exercise those skills. You know, I have to hone those skills because this is, you know, health over hardheadedness, you know? But it was hard. It was hot that it was like I was just so scared of, you know, I mean, had never been a mom before, had never gone through labor before, and and my life was about to change drastically. And then what my life was going to be after having a child and still trying to successfully be a chef um, it was, was scary. So I allowed myself time to think about what was going to be next for me, you know. Um, I allowed myself time to really think about what life I wanted for myself and what life I wanted for my family, you know, and my husband would tell me, well, you can do whatever you want. And if you're concerned about time with your daughter, then you need to think about how many hours a day are you going to spend working? He said, you also need to think about in what mood are you going to come home in? If you don't like your job, if you don't like what you're doing, if you're not satisfied by what you're doing, you might have more time at home. But is it going to be you or is it going to be someone that's unsatisfied? And that was really powerful for me. When it was time to decide about returning to work, T. Martin offered some sage advice. I used my mentors a lot and talked to them a lot about life and One thing that T and I talked about, she said, look, honey, if anybody can do it, she said, Ella Brennan ran a restaurant, and she had kids, and we all love each other today, and I think she did a damn good job. And she said, and there's something that my mom took very seriously, and she said, it's quality of time over quantity of time, and you don't need every weekend off, and you don't need to be home for dinner every night. Yeah, it all sounds fantastic. And some people get to do that, and thank God they do. Good for them, she said. But you need to think about what you want to do, and the rest will work out. And so far it has, and thank God for that advice. So Cafe Adelaide closes because Lowe's decides to do something else. Tell me how that transition went, because you went back to the kitchen at Commander's, but you weren't an executive chef anymore. How did they figure out what to do with you, and how did all that work? <laughs> well, I, I, like I said, I took all time, not off, but <laughs> to my, you know, self, and, um, and really contemplated what I wanted to do, and I kept going back to Commanders, and I kept thinking about Commanders and how much Commanders truly meant to me, how much the people there meant to me, how much the culture of that place has impacted my life. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. 
so I called Tori and I said, I really want to be a part of your team again. And he said, great, when can you start? <laughs> and I laughed. <laughs> and, um, and we talked for a while. We met a few times and, and had dinner, had drinks, and just kind of talked about it. You know, why do you want to come back? Why don't you go do something else? Why do you, you know? And he was very happy to have me back, which is great. And I knew I wasn't stepping in as chef de cuisine because there already was one, and Chris Lynch was doing a phenomenal job, and I was excited to get to work with him. Um, but I knew what I could bring to the team, and I think the team knew what I could bring. And what my title was at Commanders never really – of course, it's all very important, but it's more about the jobs that we do than the titles that we carry. And so I knew – that I was needed, you know, um, and that's where I wanted to be. So we made it work, and it worked really well for a long time. And Chris and I got along very, very well, and I think we complemented each other very well. And I've worked under Tori for a very long time, I mean, 12 years when he left. Um, and so he and I could kind of, you know, communicate without communicating. And we had a few great years, and then the big news hit. <laughs> that big news, of course, was that Tori McPhail, the longest tenured executive chef in Commander's Palace history, had resigned and was going home to Montana, meaning now there was a vacancy at the very top. I wasn't overwhelmingly shocked by the news, um, but I was surprised at how soon it was because I thought it would be a, quite a while longer. Um, but yeah, I, I knew what I wanted. And my goal when I went back to Commanders was to put myself in the position to get the job. So that's what happened. <laughs> um, you know, I was um, approached. He and I had some secret meetings with Lowey and it was a very secretive time, but sometimes that's how those things need to go. And we just had some really great talks about the future of Commanders and what that looks like and what she wants it to look like and what I want it to look like. And when the news came public, it was pretty immediate that that's, that's what was going to happen. So we gathered our whole team at Commanders and said, hey, this is what's going on, you know, and Chef Tori's leaving, and we're all incredibly sad, believe me. Um, but then they, in the same sentence, said, and here's our new chef. And so it was very exciting, and um, there was a lot of tears and a lot of really big hugs, and I feel like I was welcomed with incredibly open arms, which was amazing. I mean, it was one of the most emotional days of my life. I mean, it really was. It was incredible. How did your life change from that day forward? Oh, did it. <laughs> did it. Um, it's funny how you always, you know, you think you understand what goes on on the other side of that fence. And then you get on the other side and it's like, oh, wow. You know, um, and working so closely with Tori for so many years, um, I did have a very good idea of what his day-to-day -day life was and what his responsibilities were. Um, but going through them now, you know, and it's just a lot to juggle. It is so much, but it's also incredibly rewarding and it's it's phenomenal, you know? I love it. I absolutely love it. I absolutely got my dream job. I just got to keep my head above water. <laughs> 
Meg, you must have dreams and hopes and plans. And it's so interesting, though, because you have kind of hit what many people would look at as the pinnacle of a life's success. What's going to happen next? (laughs) Well, I think we have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of work to do, you know? One thing about commanders that I've always felt with general managers like Don Strunk or Kenny Meyer, it's beautiful leadership. And I've always been told that commanders isn't great tomorrow if it's not great today. And that's, I mean, literally in my desk, looking at my computer, I have a piece of paper behind my computer that says, Commander's Palace is not iconic tomorrow if we don't prove ourselves today. And it's not about what got us here. It's about where we're going. And and I firmly believe that. And I read that piece of paper every single day because it, it isn't. I mean, we are very, very fortunate. And we have a beautiful history in this city. And you walk from the main dining room upstairs in into the parlor room and you see James Beard's lining the wall, you know, and it's it's phenomenal. And people have done phenomenal things in that building. But we can't rest on those laurels and and making commanders great today and then making it great tomorrow and then making it great five years from now and 10 years from now. I mean, we have to be on the leading edge constantly. So I have a lot of work to do. So so to say, you know, that I've 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 hit, you know, this peak um, I absolutely feel that I have. I absolutely um, understand the gravity of where I stand today. And the amount of hard work and dedication and all of that that it took to get here is very real. Um, and I pride myself on it. But now the true test begins. That was executive chef Meg Bickford of Commander's Palace. Who is perhaps the greatest unsung female restaurateur in history? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter, along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events 
itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Who is perhaps the greatest unsung female restaurateur in history? My vote goes to Julie Frace, the Alsatian immigrant who became the wife of Antoine Alciator in 1855. Much is written and said about the great Antoine, whose restaurant endures today as the oldest continuously operating family-owned restaurant in the country, as well as their famous chef's son, Jules, the creator of Oysters Rockefeller. But without Julie, that restaurant would not be there today. You see, after giving birth to 13 children, Julie was left to care for the surviving seven alone when, in 1877, Antoine insisted upon returning home to Marseille in order to see his mother before succumbing to the lung disease so common in 19th century chefs who toiled over those coal-burning stoves. She was also left with the responsibility of the boarding house and restaurant that her husband left behind. For more than 20 years, Julie ran the St. Louis Street establishment until finally, in 1898, her second eldest son, Jules, purchased the business from his mother and she quietly retired. So the next time you dine at Antoine's, raise a toast to the restaurant's real hero, Julie Frase Alciator, the woman who made it all possible. My name is Betty Peiching Sun. I am the proprietress of Lotus Bistro, a Japanese restaurant and sushi bar in Lakeview. Housed in a modest strip center in New Orleans' Lakeview neighborhood, flanked by a dry cleaners and a mini mart, Lotus Bistro is the kind of place you might miss if you're not paying attention. But order anything from their menu and you'll be served some of the most exquisite Japanese food in the city. Expertly crafting traditional dishes and delightful twists on the classics, Lotus Bistro is not your average sushi bar. That's largely because Betty's son is not your average restaurant owner. You might say the business is in her blood. Betty was born in Taiwan to two enterprising restaurateurs who went wherever opportunity took them. As a result, Betty spent much of her childhood on the move. After her parents found success running restaurants throughout Taiwan, her family immigrated to Orange County, California. There, Betty's parents operated a large banquet and restaurant facility called Shangri-La. Years later, the family would move again, this time to Louisiana, where her uncle owned several restaurants, including the former Mr. Ties in Metairie. You know, it's quite interesting because um, growing up in Taiwan, and then my parents uprooted me and moved me to Southern California at the age of 11, then picked me back up at age 16 and dropped me off in Cajun country. So I often refer to myself as Asian Cajun Valley Girl. As an adult, 
the self-styled Asian Cajun Valley girl got into real estate, a job that found her helping others open restaurants. When she opened Lotus Bistro in 2020, Betty realized her dream of having a restaurant of her own, just as her parents did when she was growing up. When Betty joined us, she began by recalling the culture shock she experienced in the U.S. as an 11-year-old emigrant from Taiwan. Yeah, it was in Southern California, Orange County, like I said, and I did not know any English. English is my third language, and they right away enrolled me in school, and I was the funny Taiwanese girl dressed, you know, not like Southern California girls. So I was made fun of every day, and I didn't know how to speak English. And they would all look up at the airplane as it was flying by our schoolyard and tell me to go home. Oh. So I literally went home crying every day. But I decided to go to the library every day because I was in an ESL class, English as second language. I went to the library. I checked out an audio book, several. Then I would go into a private room with my mirror and my headphones, and I would enunciate and listen to the book and follow it word by word until my goal was to not have an accent. So you're 11 years old, and you're in Orange County, and you're trying to assimilate. What's happening at that great big restaurant that your parents bought? Looking back at it, it was actually quite brave of them Um, They did not know any English. They bought a business that was profitable and was a well-oiled machine. They had managers run it, but they didn't have a liquor license. So when I came, my dad told the principal I had six months to get out of ESL, of which I did. And then shortly thereafter, we applied for our liquor license. You need petition signed in your neighborhood. So I went knocking door to door and asked people to please sign the petition to allow my parents' restaurant to have liquor license. Then I attended the city hall meeting <laughs> where I was shorter than the lectern and they had to get a step stool for me to stand up in front of all the council members and the mayor to ask for our liquor license. You must have been the first middle school student they'd ever had in in regards to a liquor license. I'd say that's a safe <laughs> bet. But in hindsight, in looking at it, how fearful of a experience that would be for an 11-year-old. But I guess if your dad told you, you're going to learn the language and you're going to help us. That's what you're going to do. Yes. That's part of the culture. We were always taught to just keep our head down, not make waves, work hard, and be a positive contributing factor of our society. But the restaurant was also where I learned English. Many of our regulars would come in on a very regular basis just because they wanted to teach me English. They would come, they'd give me a hug, and they would say, this is a hug. And I would say, hug, you know. And then in return, I would teach them the two different dialects that I speak. So they enjoyed that, and I enjoyed learning from them. They would teach me love, I love you. Just, it, yes, those are very fond memories. Now, did your parents raise you to be in the restaurant industry? Absolutely not. Mom and Dad actually told me um, that we work this hard and we do this so that you don't have to. 
So you, you're in the real estate business, and you've had such success with that. Why in the world did you want a restaurant, Betty? I ask myself that every day now. <laughs> Lately, since last year, it's truly just, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, and they're grueling. I wanted to carry on the family legacy and tradition. As a young child in the countryside where um, I was born, my grandmother ra helped raise us while my parents ran the restaurant in the city. My grandma would feed a lot of people in town. And I would go around from a young age and knock on doors and tell, let people know that either breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or snack, or tea was ready for them. And I've just always appreciated those interactions than my parents' restaurant and the interactions with the guests and seeing what my mom has done for the foreign students. She would take care of them and just provide them with a warm environment where they can come and visit with her and she would nourish their bodies, same as what my grandma did. And I felt compelled to just carry that legacy as a homage to them and in honor of them. And that is why many of our specialty roles are actually named after notable women in Japanese history. And you did the most amazing thing in the restaurant. There's murals on the wall. Tell us about the murals. Tomo Gozen is on one of the walls, and she is a famous samurai warrior who took place for her elderly father when his name was selected to um, go and be in the war. Just thinking about how brave she was warms my heart. And then we have um, Katsy, who was a famous billiard player. She beat more men than I could probably count in, in her uh, competitions. She is right behind the sushi bar. Um, and then we have Miniko Iwasaki, who majority of us know as um, the geisha in Memoirs of a Geisha. Not only um, was she the most famous geisha, she's actually also an extremely brilliant businesswoman. I think in your own way, at least the way I see it, if you read the menu of Lotus Bistro, look at the murals on the wall, there's absolutely no doubt that you are a champion of women. Are you just nudging this in your own way to to try to make a little wave? Yes, and I'm glad you, you see through that. I believe that empowered women empower women, which is not always easy in our society, let alone any other culture. But you have to have that belief that it is possible, which I believe. Well, I'm thrilled to meet you here at this beginning point here. Thank you, Betty. We're, we're so glad to have you here in New Orleans. Thank you, Poppy. I really appreciate that. Betty's son, proprietress of Lotus Bistro in New Orleans Lakeview. Lotus, as the restaurant is now called, has reopened with a liquor license, allowing Betty to serve the very best specialty sake and Japanese whiskey, along with a list of notable wines from around the world. 
you'll find is a sake-style small plates along with their famous specialty rolls named for powerful women in Japanese history. Learn more by visiting lotusbistronola.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.